Well, I invite you, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust and hope that you do, to take it and turn with me to Daniel, the book of Daniel, one last time, Daniel chapter 1. It was May 8th of last year that we began our study in the book of Daniel, 34 sermons in this fascinating book. Every time we start a new sermon series in a new book, I'm always going into it with high hopes and expectations, but every single time I am so much more encouraged than I thought I was going to be, whether our study through Judges or Habakkuk or Jonah or Revelation, now Daniel. And here we come to the end of this sermon series. I I know we've had many opportunities over the last few years to say goodbye to dear friends moving out of California or even just moving away from the area. And you know that you're not going to see them for a long time. You know you're not going to see them with the frequency that you used to see them. And there's that, that sense of pain. You're excited for them, but you know you hug them a little bit longer. You don't want to let them go. You know that there's a finality too. I'm going to say goodbye and, and then sure, we'll text, we'll talk, but we won't get to see each other with the same regularity. And that's exactly how I feel this morning. I'm sure that we're going to go to Daniel uh, over the course of the next years together, but not with the same frequency. So we're really saying goodbye to Daniel this morning. And, and I want to just hug him a little bit longer. I want to reminisce together. I don't want to leave just yet. So one last sermon in this amazing book. And if you've been here through our whole study, this will be a, hopefully, Lord willing, an encouraging and helpful review as we go through the main lessons that we've learned. We'll take a little survey of the entire book. And if you're here for the very first time, or maybe you were just here a little bit later through our sermon series in the book of Daniel, I pray that this will be a really encouraging time to catch up to speed and in a nutshell, just get what we were able to get through the the last several months together in this book. So actually, I want to read Daniel chapter 4. Turn to Daniel 4. I want to read Daniel 4, verse 34 and 35, which really, I think, is the theme of this entire book. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. And it's so ironic, even that I believe that these are the theme verses in this book. They were spoken by a pagan king who God humbled and brought to himself. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven. My knowledge returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, which we just sang about. Because his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can strike against his hand and say to him, what have you done? These are the words of the living God. Let's pray and ask him to write their eternal truths on our heart this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the last 11 months that we've had together in this profound book, we've been so encouraged, so challenged, so convicted, so comforted. And it seems every step of the way that we are studying a passage or a text that seems so obscure and maybe even irrelevant to what we're going through in our lives. And yet you show us every Lord's day how your word perfectly applies, is perfectly timely and, and relevant. And God, I know that you will do that again this morning. So bless our time. 
as we give careful attention to your word, as we look as an overview, a, a flyover of everything that we've studied, grant us great encouragement, grant us comfort, challenge us, convict us, and make us more like Jesus. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, Be pleased to open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things from your law. If you do not do that work, we will walk away having seen nothing that we're supposed to see. So we come before you desperate, needy. We come before you completely dependent. And we say like Samuel, speak Lord for your servant is listening. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would listen well. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The book of Daniel, if you remember, the main theme of the entire book is that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over individuals. He's sovereign over the affairs of nations. He's sovereign over empires. He's sovereign over all of human history. And the most often used term for God in this book is El Elyon, which is the most high God. And that is our God, the most high That term is used nine times, the sovereign one, the judge over all of human history, the ruler over all of human history. And that's literally what Daniel's name means. Daniel's name means God is judge. God is ruler. And so Daniel, in this book, he's going to pick six different accounts to highlight that reality, to highlight God's sovereignty over all things. When we began our sermon series, I said that I wanted to see five specific things through this book as we studied it. We wanted to see that Daniel would give us kind of a window into how to live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. And we've seen that. We wanted to see Daniel give us a window into how to respond to pagan rulers. And we've seen that. We see that God's sovereign control over individuals, peoples, empires, and all of human history could never be thwarted. We've seen a window into how God's sovereignty protects and sustains his people. And we've seen how God is sovereignly working to bring about salvation for all who would put their trust in him. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to just do two basic things. I want to do a survey through the book just really quickly. We're going to do a big flyover of the whole book. And then I want to ask, so what? So we're going to do a survey through the whole book. And then we're going to ask, so what? Based off of our study, based off of everything we've learned What are we to take away moving forward into our daily living? So let's start in Daniel chapter one. Daniel chapter one, you remember this chapter was about the food issue, right? The eating of food that uh, the, the pagan rulers wanted Daniel and his friends to eat certain things. And they said, no. Verse one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Often we saw that phrase, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the one who's doing this and he's the one who's won and he's the ruler who has taken Daniel and his three friends captive. But it's actually God allowing, delivering, purposing, planning, and ordaining. Daniel was carried away in the first stage of the deportation. There were three, you remember, from Jerusalem into Babylon. The first was in 605 BC. He would have been about 15 years old at that time and he will live in Babylon for 70 years in a thoroughly pagan city with pagan rulers, with seemingly unlimited power. And yet this entire chapter is here to teach us that God is sovereign in those moments when it seems like the pagan rulers are in control. We saw that God was faithful in 
the sovereign execution of his judgment. That was verses one through two. We saw that God is the one who delivered Israel into Babylon's hands because he promised, if you do not repent, you will be disciplined. And that's exactly what happened. But God sovereignly blessed the obedience of his children when his children in this chapter said, we cannot bow down and serve your gods. We cannot worship your idols. We cannot do what you're asking us to do. And God sovereignly equipped Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for his eternal purposes in bringing about his amazing plans in chapter one. He protected them. Daniel's captivity looked like on the surface that it was kind of the end of the world for Israel. But in fact, it was all in God's plan. God's purpose in sending Daniel and his friends into Babylon was ultimately, yes, for judgment for Israel, but for mercy for the people of God. Because he sent Daniel and his three friends and other nobility of Israel into Babylon to kind of get the stage set for other Jews to come and be able to live peacefully and securely. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, quote, We tend to see our trials as isolated nightmares. God, however, sees them from a different perspective. They are important and they are a connected punctuation mark in the biography of grace that he's writing in your life. And that's what he did in chapter one. Chapter two was about the dream. You remember that dream of the statue? Chapter two taught us that God is sovereign over all of human history, that he has a plan that he's unfolding and that plan's disclosed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He has the dream of the statue, head of gold is Babylon, chest of arms and silver, Medo-Persia, belly and thighs of bronze is Greece and the legs of iron and, and the uh, feet of iron and clay is Rome. And then this coming Rome 2.0. And we see the earthly kingdoms as they're played out. Then there's this other kingdom that shows up in chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, a divine kingdom that's established by God through his son at the second coming and destroys every other earthly kingdom and rules and reigns in righteousness. So the big point of Daniel chapter 2 is that God is sovereign over all of human history. He has a plan and he's working that plan out relentlessly, irresistibly, and certainly it will happen. As we say, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. All of the empires of this world are temporary. Only God's kingdom lasts forever. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like that. And that's why we have chapter three, because Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue. And you remember the statue in his dream has different, uh, different metals, different precious metals. And the head is of gold, but the rest of the statue is of different metals, meaning the head is Babylon, but it will ultimately fail and be destroyed. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't like that. So I'm going to make my image the whole thing gold because I'm never going to fade away. I'm never going to have my empire destroyed. And so Daniel chapter three is all about this statue set up where Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you need to worship me and my unending kingdom. He sets up a 90 foot statue and yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, are unintimidated by him, confident in God's power, submissive to God's will, and committed to God's, committed to God himself, regardless of the consequences that may come. You remember the furnace is melting the gold, the furnace they're going to be thrown into, it's melting the gold, it set up the plates of gold around the statue. So that furnace was somewhere around 1,984 degrees because that's the temperature at which gold is going to melt and then he's going to heat it up seven times more. And we saw the theme of God being sovereign even over the persecution of his own children. While God is sovereign over human history, that doesn't mean that he's going to keep us from suffering. In fact, his sovereignty ordains the suffering that we go through. 
And yet we see the amazing response of these three men. And we see God delivering them. He didn't have to, but he did. It's amazing. They, they come out. They don't even smell like smoke. Sit around a campfire for 10 minutes and you're going to have to wash your clothes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. They don't smell like smoke at all. And God was doing amazing things in and through that. He wasn't just protecting them. He was protecting all of Israel because this event happened 15 years before the final deportation of Israel into Babylon. And so all of the people that are coming from Israel into Babylon would have heard of this story and heard, don't worry, God will protect us. And that led us into chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he has that dream of the tree, which at the end of chapter four, he turns into the animal because of his pride. And then his story is going to end. 30 years happen between chapter three and chapter four. So 30 years have passed. We are now staring at the end of Nebuchadnezzar and we see God being completely sovereign again over every ruler. Nebuchadnezzar sets him up as king over all things and says, look at what I've done. Look at what I've made. God graciously through the dream even allowed him an opportunity to repent. Do not puff yourself up like that. Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar, don't do that and this won't happen. But if you do that, this will happen. And lo and behold, Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'm going to be prideful. About a year after the dream, he sets himself up as king over everything, says, look at what I've done. Look at the glory that I have. And while the word is still in his mouth, God's promise to Nebuchadnezzar comes true. He is turned into this animalistic individual. He believes he's an animal, a psychological condition called lycanthropy. Still observable even to this day. You can read about it. And it would last, Daniel told us, until seven periods of time pass over you. So his insanity lasts for seven years. Just think about that. What were you doing in 2016? That's how long he was insane for. And we even see that in the history books, extra biblical books, extra biblical records told us of Nebuchadnezzar having this period of weird sickness. And so his son had to be installed in the throne in his place. That led to chapter five after Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. And this is where we were careful to say, we don't know for sure, but I think that Nebuchadnezzar was saved at the end. I think God brought him to a place of final salvation, which is an amazing reality. Looking at his story arc from chapter one to chapter four, I think we'll see him in heaven. And that's because God was relentlessly not giving up on Nebuchadnezzar time after time after time, even in a brutal way of bringing discipline. He brought him to a place where he surrendered and submitted himself to God. Daniel chapter five is two decades after Nebuchadnezzar's death. So we fast forward again, Belshazzar's feast, the writing on the wall, Darius the Mede comes in, that's chapter five. You remember, we know this historically, the date was October 12th, 539 BC. Uh, there was a, a feast being thrown by Belshazzar. Belshazzar is throwing the feast. And you remember during the feast, he takes out the vessels of gold and silver and precious metals from the temple treasury. So God's precious uh, cups and goblets and artifacts from the temple. Why does Belshazzar pick those things? Remember Daniel had prophesied, your kingdom is going to fall and Yahweh is going to do it and he's going to establish another king. And so Belshazzar is saying, yeah, right, come get me. I'm going to use his goblets. I'm going to use his vessels. I'm going to use his cups because I don't even think he exists. And it was that very night that Persia was outside of the city walls. When they come in and they destroy 
Belshazzar and Darius the Mede rules and reigns. God is sovereign over the rise and fall of empires and the kingdoms of men. That led us to Daniel chapter 6, very familiar chapter. This is Daniel in the lion's den. We saw that God is sovereign over the persecution of his people, even if it comes through malicious and unjust laws. Remember, Daniel's thrown into the lion's den because he disobeyed a law that Daniel's enemies in the power and the authorities of Persia, they were angry with him and the king loves him, but the other authorities are very jealous. He's thrown in the lion's den. He will not uh, cease praying. He's thrown in the lion's den and very interesting, rather than spending the night with Daniel in the lion's den, we actually spend the night with the king. We're staring at his anxiety because he loves Daniel, and he doesn't want anything to happen to Daniel. And this is very important. We saw this time and time again, but we really did a deep dive on this reality in Daniel chapter 6. Dale Ralph Davis told us, quote, you may have rulers or others in high places who are well disposed towards you, like Daniel had. The king loved Daniel. But he says this, do not rest in them as your trump card, for even when all their apparent power is working for you, it will prove to be as helpless as Samson without hair. I just, I wish, I hope, I pray that we will learn that lesson to the depth of our bones. That we should not put our trust in any political ruler, any political figure. We can get a really bad one like Nebuchadnezzar and things could go well. We could get a really good one like Darius trying to help Daniel and things could go really poorly. Salvation is not from a political figure. Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2.9. And the beauty of Daniel chapter 6, which happens 50 years after the fiery furnace episode, the same pre-incarnate Christ who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace was with Daniel in the lion's den. That was chapters 1 through 6. You remember there's two main ways to divide and outline the whole book. You can either outline it by languages. Hebrew, chapter, uh, Hebrew is um, the, the first language in the book. Chapters 1 through chapter 2, verse 4 is written in Hebrew. And then chapter 2, verse 4 through 7 is Aramaic. It's the trade language of the people so that everyone would know, everyone would be able to read it. And then Hebrew, it picks back up. Daniel chapter 8 through 11 written in Hebrew. So there's one way to divide it is the languages. What's written in Hebrew versus what is written in Aramaic. The other way to divide the book is just the first half is narrative, the second half is, po uh, is prophecy, the second half is apocalyptic literature. And so that's really the way that we divided it. So we saw the, the stories in chapters 1 through 6, and then we saw the prophecies in, da in Daniel 7 through 12. Daniel 7 occurs before chapter 5, chronologically before chapter 5, so there's a bit of a flashback. And chapter 7 describes the exact same reality of chapter 2. It's another vision, it's another dream, it's a prophecy that Daniel has. But it is describing the exact same thing as chapter 2 with the statue of the precious metals. So why two images? Why two dreams? We said because Daniel chapter 2 is showing us the way that man views their own empires. Look at how beautiful, look at how gorgeous, they're amazing. And chapter 7 shows us God's view of those same empires. They're beastly. Remember there's a, a lion represents Babylon. There's a bear, represents Medo-Persia. There's a leopard, represents Greece. There's a, a fourth beast with iron teeth, represents Rome. And in the middle of chapter seven, which is the middle of the entire book, the Ancient of Days takes his seat 
With great majesty, surrounded by more than 100 million angels, they open the books together. They examine the record of that fourth beast who is yet to come and the final final wicked ruler of that fourth beast who is yet to come, the Antichrist, that little horn. And they discover that he deserves death and sentence is passed on that man and the beast is slain and the entire empire is destroyed and the king is destroyed. And just like that, the Antichrist is gone. Why? It's because Jesus shows up and makes all of the wrong things right again. And that's the middle of the book. The very middle of the book points us to Jesus and his second coming. That leads us to Daniel 8. Daniel 8 is God warning his people about a particular time of intense persecution that was coming. Daniel 8 goes back to Hebrew, not Aramaic anymore, but it goes back to Hebrew because it's written to the Jews to provide uh, steel for their spine for the days that are yet to come. We see the image of the ram and the goat. The ram represents Medo-Persia. The goat represents Greece. This is the uh, period where Alexander is going to die. His kingdom is going to be split up into four rulers. This is when uh, Judas Maccabeus is um, kind of ushered into having to fight and revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. This is Hanukkah and the Festival of Lights. This is all that we've studied about that reality. And there is a lot of ink spilled in the book of Daniel about this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. It's a lot of ink about him. And the question is why? And the reason why is because he's an Antichrist type figure. Satan does nothing original. He wants the Antichrist to rule and reign now. He just keeps getting it wrong. He wanted Haman to be the Antichrist in the book of Esther. He got it wrong. He wanted Hitler to be the Antichrist in the 1940s. He got it wrong. He can't get it right, and one day he will, and that's when Jesus is going to allow the Antichrist to rule and reign for seven years and then come in and destroy him. So there's this near-far element where as we're looking at Antiochus Epiphanes, he's a real historical figure, but then there's also this foreshadowing of who the Antichrist is going to be. That's Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 9 gives us that prophetic sweeping timeline of all of Israel's history from Daniel all the way to the end of the age. Daniel was praying. You remember Daniel was saying, God, you promised we would be in exile for 70 years. It's been 70 years. When are we going back home? And this is God's answer to Daniel. The 70 weeks being decreed. The bottom line from Daniel chapter 9 is that God is not done with you now, Israel, and God will not be done with you all the way through the end of the age. He's going to protect you. The entire tribulation period of tribulation and great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, that period of seven years that is yet to come is focused on Israel. It's focused on redeeming Israel and bringing Israel back to a place of full trust in Jesus as Messiah. And that's what's going to happen. That leads to Daniel 10 through 12, which we've studied recently. So we can go quickly through it. Daniel 10 through 12 is one unit. Daniel 10 is the prelude. It's uh, Daniel seeing the pre-incarnate Christ again. Uh, There's a conversation about the angels who are in charge of the different empires and the way that they're warring and fighting together. And that leads us into Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 verses 1 through 35 are a detailed account of the intertestamental period between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament where Antiochus Epiphanes is ruling and reigning, this perfect type of the Antichrist. And then Gabriel moves to the end times in verses 35 through 45. That's about the Antichrist and the end of all of human history. And then chapter 12, Michael shows up, uh, brings help, just like Revelation 12 describes. Which, by the way, if you read through Revelation, you're going to have so many new 
realities from Daniel that will help you understand the book of Revelation. I would encourage you to do that. Read through Revelation and see some of those realities that we've seen even in our study through Daniel. If you know Daniel, you're going to know Revelation so much better. So there's, there's our survey of the entirety of Daniel. But my question is, so what? So what? This last week, I read through many of the sermons that we went through in this book. And this last week, every day this last week, I read the book of Daniel from start to finish in one sitting just to let it wash over my soul, to let it remind me of the things that we've learned, to let it encourage me, convict me, and challenge me. And as I read through it, there were four main realities that just kept coming up in my heart. What should the book of Daniel produce in us? I want to offer you, I want to submit four realities that the book of Daniel should produce in you and in me. As we've gone through this whole book, so what? Number one, what should this produce in us? I believe the book of Daniel as a whole should produce in us a sense of smallness, a sense of being small. Even as I was reading through it, you look through these thousands of years that fit inside the, these verses. Sometimes a thousand years is inside of half of one verse. Prophecies that span thousands and thousands of years. It was interesting, I was reading through Daniel 11, where there's prophecies of thousands of years that are taking place in that chapter. And I was reading through it. And as I was reading, you know, when a beam of light is shining kind of over where you're sitting and you can see the dust in that beam of light. I was sitting there with my Bible and I could see dust as a beam of light was shining over my Bible. I could see dust just float down and land on my Bible in Daniel 11. And I thought we are less significant than even that piece of dust in the span of human history. No one's going to remember us. We're so small compared to what's happening in this book. And I think a lot of people kick against that. I think a lot of people say, no, 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 I want to be important. I want to be validated. I want to be known and remembered. And Daniel closes with us just saying, I'm so glad I'm so small. I'm so glad I'm so small. Daniel should produce humility in us. Not kicking against our smallness, but producing humility in us. Humility is for your soul what a good night's sleep is for your body. It's restorative. It's so good to get to a place where we say, I don't know everything and I cherish that. Even in this book, we would have to say, I think that this is what this means, but I'm not even sure. Only then can we live with a sense of astonished gratitude that we're even here, that we even get to enjoy this life. Pride grumbles at everything. Humility joyfully receives life as a gift. Pride makes everything gray and drab. Humility just brings out the color. I've, I love this book because it's just, it's flattened my sense of the time period that we're living in. So often we feel this sense of urgency that somehow we got to get it right right now or else everything's going to fail. And I just look through the history given to us in Daniel. I'm like, man, if, if life was going to fail, it would have failed back then. Look at how bad it was back then. So many people today are saying, oh, life's worse than it's ever been. And I think you can go to Daniel and say, nope, it's been way worse before. 
This book has made me feel like Bilbo Baggins in the end of The Hobbit. Remember, he goes on that crazy adventure, comes home, he's wiped out, Whew, I made it. And he, he went on an adventure and he lived through it and he fought valiantly. And he's kind of thinking, I made this happen. He's kind of thinking he's hot stuff. And Gandalf shows up and says, you're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins. And I'm very fond of you, but you are only quite a little fellow in the wide world after all. That's what Daniel's done to us. And you know what Bilbo's response is? He says, thank goodness. That's what Daniel should produce in us. Thank goodness. We're okay. There's a significance to our insignificance. God knows us by name, loves us, knows the very number of hairs on our head. But man, we can, we can exist in this world being totally fine, never being remembered. That's okay. There's this relief of humility, this relief. I don't have to be a big deal. Being a big deal is a burden. And humility means that you can just stop interpreting everything that happens in relation to yourself. You're not the epicenter of everything. We're just tiny people in a vast world, in a vast history. We can make a difference, yes, but we're just tiny people. And thank goodness. It's like what C.S. Lewis writes about Bree, the talking horse in Narnia. He had been held captive in another land, and so he could talk, and in the other land, the other horses couldn't talk. So he thought, again, I'm pretty big stuff. I'm a big deal. And another horse says to him, another Narnian horse says, yeah, you're not quite the great horse that you'd come to think. You could hardly help being that, but as long as you know that you're nobody very special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse on the whole. I think that's the irony here. We tend to inflate our importance and therefore we have no importance. Whereas if we just say, I'm a humble person and I just want to live here for the glory of God, those are the people that end up making a difference. Gavin Ortland writes, in places where we are very ordinary or even below average, we need not panic. Mediocrity is not the end of the world because your value is rooted in what Christ has done for you. You're loved and treasured by God himself. Your life is measured by his estimation. You have an ocean of joy awaiting you in eternity. So your happiness and welfare are not dependent on you being a big deal. I just love that. And this will make us the most grateful and joyful people in the world. Like Thomas Watson, the old Puritan writer said, so says a gracious heart, Lord, why is it that notwithstanding all of my unworthiness or insignificance, a fresh tide of mercy comes into me every day? This book has given us a sense of smallness. Number two, it's given us a calm contentedness in God's control. It's given us a sense of calm contentedness because God's in control. We see time and time again in the book of Daniel, the way that God's working in all of human history, ordaining, planning, uh, purposing. Because God is in control of everything, we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry. We've seen this in Daniel and his three friends. One commentator says, although the known facts of Daniel's life are so few, nevertheless, he is revealed as a man of stalwart character and priceless convictions. He is willing at times to stand up for what he believes and he is a true hero of the faith. Coupled with this, there is a gentle courtesy in his relation with others and a simple and humble dependence upon the grace and power of the God whom he worships. 
So far from being a jerk or a rebel, Daniel and his three friends say nothing to the king that's not said compassionately, clearly, compellingly, and with grace and respect. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about to be thrown in the fire furnace. Oh, king, we cannot do this. But there's no sense of being a rebel. It's just we must obey God. We must serve God. Reminds me of John the Baptist. He's in prison for preaching against Herod and Herodias. And yet while in prison, Herod goes down to the cell to listen to him, speak to him night after night because he still speaks with compassion and grace. He loves hearing him because John the Baptist apparently is speaking in a winsome way while still calling out their sin. We must stand firm and be brave when the wind is blowing hard against us, but we do so with calmness in our souls contentedly because God's the judge, we're not. God's the defender, we're not. That's the reality of the book of Daniel. There are only six events from Daniel's life that are included here. So this book isn't ultimately about Daniel, it's about God. It's not even about the exile, it's about God. It's about the sovereignty of God in human history. I like the way one author says it. He says, quote, this book is not intended to give us an account of the life of Daniel. It gives neither his lineage nor his age, but recounts only a few of the events of his long career. It's not meant to give us a record of the history of Israel during the exile, nor even of the captivity in Babylon. Its purpose is to show how, by God's providential guidance, his miraculous interventions, his foreknowledge and almighty power, that he controls and directs the history of nations, the lives of Hebrew captives, and the mightiest of the kings of the earth for the accomplishment of his divine and beneficial plans for his servants and for his people. It's about God. Yes, this book has given us some character studies on how we should live. But more than that, this book is about the one true hero, our sovereign God, and the reality that he is the same today as he was with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, we can live lives that are so at peace. A calm contentedness. There's a better way to live in these days than growing angry, bitter, retreating, or giving up. And brothers and sisters, we see a lot of Christians doing that these days. There's a much better way to live. Even in the exile, Jeremiah 29, God tells his people, plant trees, grow your families, be a blessing to the city. Yes, it's a pagan city. Yes, it's a bad city. And yes, sometimes that city wants you to be killed, but be a blessing to them. Glorify God with calm contentedness in your heart and trust him. The book of Daniel is all about God being in control. God's driving the bus. We aren't. So that means that we have one of two choices. You can either sit on the bus, gripping the seat in front of you with white knuckles, worried at every turn about what's going to happen to you in your life and our nation, to our world. Or you can sit back and enjoy the ride. It's your choice, but here's the bottom line. You're going to get to the same destination no matter what you choose. That's kind of the point of Matthew 7, right? Matthew 7, Jesus says, worry and anxiety doesn't even help do anything. It doesn't even accomplish anything. So stop worrying because you're going to get there in the end anyway. Either get there with white knuckles going, I wish I was in control and I'm not and I'm terrified. Or you could say, God, you're in control and you're better than I am at this thing. So we trust you, God. This book has given us a sense of our smallness which should grow humility in us. This book has given us a sense of calm contentedness because God is sovereign. Number three, the third reality that we've seen clearly in this book is that we have strong support in our suffering. We have strong support in our suffering. And this is really important because suffering is inevitable. 
Job chapter 5, verse 7, as sparks fly upward, so man is born for the day of trouble. We know suffering's coming. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, brethren, do not be surprised by the fiery trials that uh, overtake you as if this were some strange thing that were happening. No, no, we know in this world, you will have tribulation. It's a promise, money back guarantee from Jesus himself. And we struggle with this. If we can be honest, we struggle with this way more than any other place in the world. America, American evangelicalism struggles big time with suffering because we think if we're suffering, we must be doing something wrong. And God's word says, actually, suffering is unavoidable, inevitable, and a part of God's perfect plan. We've been taught time and time again in this book that suffering is always purposeful. God never wastes the suffering of his children. In this book, we've seen that God is purging, refining, purifying, making his glory known. The Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, a pool of standing water will turn stagnant. Faith grows more with the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. And then he says this, you cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. Oh, we wish we could. But you cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. Your suffering, my suffering, it's never purposeless. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Peter writes to his brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. What Peter is saying is the suffering that you are going through is producing something in you to validate, confirm, and show you that you have faith. Don't you want to know who you are? Don't you want to know how to live wisely in this life? Don't you want to know how to be compassionate and sympathetic towards others who are going through suffering? Don't you want to know if you really, really trust God? Then you need suffering. You need it or else you won't know those things. There's no way to really know if you trust God and if your trust in God will get you through the trials unless you go through the trials. There's no way to know, is my faith in God real? Or do I follow him and love him just because of the things that he can give me? This is the whole book of Job. Do you serve God for God, no matter what it costs you? Or do you serve God because he is the butler to your agenda? He serves me and makes my agenda happen. Just think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If their agenda is, I want a happy life where nothing bad happens, and God has given me that, even though we've been deported into Babylon and exiled, God's giving me a good life here in Babylon, so I'll keep serving him. The moment that they find out we're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace, if we do not bow down and worship a false god, that's when they throw God away and they say, we'll worship this other god, because my God has failed to keep me safe in my agenda of having a good life. That's the whole premise of the book of Job. Satan says, Job loves you for no reason other than the things that you've given him. And God says, I'll take that bet because Job loves me for me. Suffering proves what do you love God for? Do you love God for God or do you love God for the things that he can give you? God is worthy of our affections and suffering reminds us that even if things are going badly, if we have God, we have everything that we need.
The Lord is my shepherd. And because he is my shepherd, I shall not want. Literally, I have everything that I need. There is nothing that I need that I'm lacking. Suffering shows you that. But the beauty of the strength and support that we get in suffering that we've seen in two very specific places in Daniel, but throughout the whole book, is that Jesus himself walks with us in the suffering. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, when you walk through the fires, I will not protect you, not guard you, not help you. I will be with you. I'm going to be with you. Dale Ralph Davis says, sometimes God allows hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. And sometimes in the midst of suffering, when we have a clear understanding of Jesus being with us, it's, it's crazy, but sometimes we say, you know what, it's okay if the suffering stays. If I have Jesus, I have everything. You will only feel and sense and comprehend that Jesus is with you in your fiery furnace to the degree that you know Jesus already went through the ultimate fiery furnace for you. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon called Christ's Agony, said, quote, It was the dread which Jesus' feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup that we read earlier in Mark chapter 14 in Gethsemane. And this cup was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was about to be cast. And he was brought to the mouth of that furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat. And he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This is the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. The terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. He was staring into what we deserve to be thrown into. He was staring at the wrath of God and bearing that wrath against our sin. And we deserve to be thrown there into the ultimate fiery furnace. And he says, I will go for them. He says, I love them so much. I don't want them to go in there. I'll go in there. And God, only God saves us by being cast away for us. Every other religion in the world, they say that salvation is by you being a better person, by you trying harder, by you doing good things, by you keeping good laws. Only Christianity says the only way to be saved is if Jesus goes into the furnace for you. But just think about this. Just think reasonably. If you think that you can save yourself from the fire furnace by being a better person, by doing good things, by being moral, by trying harder, if you do that, what happens when your day of suffering comes? When your day of suffering comes, you will either be mad at God because look at me, I'm trying to do a good thing. I'm trying to be a good person and you didn't keep your end of the bargain. I do good and you keep me safe. I do good and you keep suffering away from me. So we'll either be mad at God because he didn't keep his end of this bargain or we'll be mad at ourselves. I'm suffering because obviously I wasn't good enough. I haven't been good enough. I haven't tried hard enough. I'm going to try harder and the suffering's going to go away. If you go into your furnace of suffering with that mindset, I can be a better person, I can try harder, I'll, I'll, get out of, I'll get out of this mess by me just being better, that'll destroy you. 
But if you stare at the gospel, if you stare at what Jesus has done for you by bearing hell on the cross so that you and I don't have to, if you can say this is a cooler, smaller furnace that I'm going through in my suffering, but I can handle it because Jesus was thrown into the worst furnace for me. That changes everything as you go through suffering. It doesn't take away the pain, but it takes away that sense of purposelessness. And we can say, if, if he went through steadfastly for me, then I can go steadfastly through my trials because of him. Not for him, not like I'm going to be a better person for you now, but because I have the power that he's given to me. He went through the hardest thing and he gives me the power to go through everything. I can trust him. And I know that the furnaces of suffering that I go through will only refine me and make me more like him because he suffered so that I don't have to go through a purposeless suffering. He suffered not so that I don't ever suffer. He suffered so that when I suffer, I become more like him. And he's always with us. He's with us in the furnace. He's with us in the suffering, always. And that leads to the last point. If we have a savior who loves us that much and he's with us always, then this book should produce in us, number four, a love and a longing to be with him. It should produce in us a love and a longing for him. If he went through the suffering that he went through because of his love for me, don't you just want to be with him? This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. We love his appearing. We long to see him. He's with us now and we want to be with him. You have a perfect comforter to bring any trial, suffering, any distress, bring it to him. And he will hold it with you and bear it with you. I love the illustration of this in, in the Chronicles of Narnia with C.S. Lewis writing uh, The Magician's Nephew. There's a little boy named Diggory who meets Aslan, the Christ figure. Diggory's mother is sick, and so he goes to Aslan for help. But he's afraid because he's speaking to Aslan. And C.S. Lewis writes, quote, up until then, he'd been looking at the great lion's front feet and the huge claws on them. And now in his despair, he looked up at his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in this whole world. For from the face bent down near his own, a great shining tear stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know. Grief is great. What a world of comfort is bound up in those words. I know. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our every weakness. We have one who has been through everything that we've been through yet without sin. And he can say, I know. 
No one could ever suffer more than he did when he took our sins on the cross, absorbed the full sting of the justice of God on our behalf, sinking into the depths of hell itself and being forsaken. Because of this, Jesus is the perfect friend to sufferers. He could not be better suited or better prepared to heal your heart and to meet every need you have. We have seen time and time again this sense of smallness. We've been given a sense of calm contentedness because God's in control. We've been shown that God is our strong support in the midst of our suffering. And that's why we long for his return because of our study of this book. I think perhaps my favorite scene in the entire book was Daniel's three friends in the fire furnace. You remember they're thrown in. There's a fourth man that shows up. And as they exist in that fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar and the soldiers looking on are amazed and they wonder and Nebuchadnezzar says, bring them out. He yells, come out. I think that's my favorite part of the book of Daniel. Because what these three men were probably terrified of as they're getting thrown in, they're now standing in the fiery furnace, completely protected, speaking with Jesus. And I just wonder in my own sanctified imagination, if when they hear those words, come out with Nebuchadnezzar yelling, come out, I want to talk with you. I wonder if they look at Jesus and they just say, do we have to leave now? Can we stay just a little while longer? Because even if it means being in a fiery furnace, we just want to be with you, wherever you are. And even if it means that we aren't protected or kept safe, fine, we want to be with you. Death is gain, Paul writes. And I just see them one by one, come on, let's go, walking out of the furnace. And that last guy, whether it's Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego, I don't know, but that last one just taking one last look saying, I don't want to leave you. And again, in my sanctified imagination, I see Jesus saying, I'll be with you forever. And one day you're going to be with me and you never have to say goodbye. Father, thank you so much for this book that has been so comforting in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials. We want to be with you so badly. And even in this book that has been Character study about Daniel and the way that he walks through suffering. Character study about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we love and we can't wait to be with them in heaven. This story is not ultimately about them. They're not the heroes. And they would say that this morning. They would say, great, I'm glad you're encouraged by our story, but it's not about us. It's about you. It's about you, God. It's about you. And so we want to wrap up our entire study by just saying, all glory be to you. Not to us, not to Daniel, not to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not to Nebuchadnezzar. All glory be to you because you're the one who protected them. You're the one who saved them. You're the one who glorified them and you will do those same things for us. All glory be to you. And on that day, when the great I am, the faithful and the true will forever make his dwelling with us again, we'll never have to say goodbye. Oh, how we long for that day. Teach us even now as we sing to long for that day even more. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.